0: Lawyers for former President Donald Trump say items marked classified found at a Florida storage unit used by Trump have been turned over to the FBI. It's Thursday, December 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupert Shatnoy. Coming up, police in Germany arrest dozens of far-right extremists.
1: The rates targeted people suspected of plotting a violent coup against the government
0: that was to include targeted killings of politicians and senior public servants. Also this hour, the president of Peru is arrested and removed from power, accused of attempting a coup. And as developers buy up mobile home parks in Massachusetts, some residents are seeing their homes literally destroyed.
2: The person that runs the machine put the top jaw on top and the bottom jaw above the metal frame and squish.
0: Xander Bogart's signs with San Diego.
3: It's sunny in the 50s today. It's seven oh one Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House is set to vote today on legislation that codifies marriage rights for interracial and same-sex couples. The measure has already passed the Senate. President Biden backs the bill and says he will promptly sign it. For the first time, the federal government will track and report opioid overdoses nationwide in real time. This comes as drug deaths have spiked more than 100,000 a year. NPR's Brian Mann has more.
4: Federal agencies have long struggled to track drug overdoses. Information is often spotty and months out of date. Beginning today, officials will report non-fatal overdoses involving opioids, including fentanyl and heroin, using data collected from EMS first responders. Dr. Ruhu Gupta with the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy says this information, updated every two weeks, will guide the public health response to overdose clusters.
5: Provide first responders, clinicians, and policymakers with real-time actionable information that will improve our responses and ultimately save lives.
4: The new system will only track opioid overdoses, which account for roughly 80 percent of drug deaths nationwide. Brian Mann, NPR News.
3: The man accused of last month's fatal shooting of three University of Virginia students is in court today. Whitney Evans of Member Station VPM reports Christopher Jones Jr. faces several charges, including second-degree murder.
1: Authorities say Jones, a student at UVA, opened fire on his classmates while aboard a charter bus headed back from a field trip in Washington, D.C. Three members of the school's football team, Devin Chandler, Lavelle Davis Jr., and Deshaun Perry, were all killed, and another two were injured in the attack. Jones, who was a member of the football team, is being held without bond in a Charlottesville area jail. Today's hearing will determine the next steps for the 22-year-old, including a potential trial date. Meanwhile, a special counsel appointed by Virginia's attorney general is looking into whether the university did all it could to prevent the shooting. Jones had prior criminal convictions and was the subject of a campus investigation involving a gun-related incident. For NPR News, I'm Whitney Evans. Chinese
3: President Xi Jinping is in Saudi Arabia on a three-day visit. He's working to cement relations between the two nations. China is one of Saudi Arabia's biggest customers for oil. NPR's Jackie Northam says Xi's visit comes after President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia earlier this year.
6: Equally important uh, is the symbolism of Xi's visit, which shows that Saudi Arabia has other options than the U.S.,
3: and it may be recalibrating its foreign policy. NPR's Jackie Northam prepared that report. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning Ukrainians that repair workers cannot fully restore the country's power grid. Russian missile attacks have damaged it as winter deepens. Zelensky is encouraging people to adapt to blackouts. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The T says by this time Monday morning, you'll be able to take the Green Line into Medford. It's been running test trains on its latest extension. WBUR's Walter Rothman found neighbors had mixed feelings about the T's long-awaited arrival.
7: Tufts math professor Loring too says he doesn't fully trust the T to hit its Monday deadline after missing so many others.
8: I think first it was last year, and then December, and then May, August, November. November came and uh, went, you know.
7: (laughs) Carly Nesson says she plans to take her two-year-old son for a ride on opening day.
1: I ran into a neighbor yesterday who was excited, and she said she and her friend are going to ride the first day. She told me what the first day was, and she said, you better take the kid on there, because he's going to be excited. So yeah, we're all really, really pumped for it.
7: Five new Green Line stops are set to open Monday. A sixth new station just opened in Union Square in Somerville in March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: In his final weeks in office, Governor Charlie Baker is recommending more pardons. The latest round is for three men convicted of crimes ranging from armed rob- robbery to drunk driving. All three pardons were unanimously recommended by a state advisory board. They need final approval from the governor's council. Baker has already granted pardons to more than a dozen people in the last few months. Eric Batista is officially Worcester's city manager. He is the first Latino to hold that position. He was sworn in Tuesday after officially reaching a contract deal with the city council. That deal includes a salary of $275,000. Batista has been acting city manager since Ed Augustus stepped down from the job in June. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will attend today's ribbon-cutting ceremony for the newest building in the city skyline. The 19-story Center for Computing and Data Sciences at Boston University has been nicknamed the Jenga Building. It's the largest net-zero emissions building in the city. WBR's Palomora reports it uses renewable energy along with geothermal heating and cooling.
9: The energy that goes into heating and
0: cooling
10: buildings is a significant source of carbon emissions in Boston. To reach net zero emissions, this new building uses geothermal energy. It comes from about 30 wells that extend 1,500 feet underground. Dennis Kohlberg is BU Associate Vice President of Sustainability.
11: The earth is essentially a big battery, a thermal battery for us. And then in the wintertime, that heat comes back out out of the ground.
10: The building purchases electricity from renewable sources and has no fossil fuel connections.
0: For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Muda. We should note that Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. It's 7.07.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, Wealth Management and Commercial and Innovation Banking, designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth
0: Xander Bogarts is heading to San Diego. Multiple reports say the Red Sox shortstop has signed an 11-year, $280 million deal with the Padres. The Celtics beat the Suns 125 to 98 last night in Phoenix and the Bruins shut out the Avalanche for nothing in Denver. Sunny today with a high in the lower 50s, clear overnight with temperatures falling to around 30. Sunny again tomorrow and in the mid 50s, we could see a little rain and maybe even a snow shower on Saturday. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 7:08. WBUR supporters include Focus Features, presenting Spoiler Alert,
13: starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, His Life Story Became a Love Story, directed by Michael Showalter, in select theaters everywhere
14: tomorrow. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
15: And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. German authorities say they expect to make more arrests as they investigate an alleged plot to overthrow the government there. Thousands of police officers carried out raids throughout Germany yesterday. They arrested more than two dozen people suspected of planning to break into the seat of Germany's government, attack political leaders, and seize control of the country. Among those arrested, an aristocrat, a soldier, and a former member of parliament. We're joined now by Constanza Steltenmuller. She is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and an expert on German foreign and security policy. Constanza, thanks for being here.
16: Thank you very much for having you on. Good morning.
15: Good morning. On its face, this plot sounds horrific. I mean, these people were plotting to break into government buildings, kill political leaders. Having this plan at all is obviously criminal. But based on what you're learning, how realistic was it?
16: Well, it seems as though the police had been watching this group for a very, very long time um, and had been carefully um, monitoring their every move. Um, they were uh, just, but if you look at the plan that they executed there, yeah, yesterday they searched 130 premises uh, with 3,000 officers and arrested 25 in, uh, individuals. I think at this point, where. Um, at 30, um, and they are planning to arrest more, um, and even made arrests in Austria and Italy. That suggests they've been watching this for a very long time and we're watching to crack down. The other thing that is really notable, they had informed a lot of press. So TV and print journalists were ready with cameras and with stories. But uh, uh, but again,
15: was was this something, I mean, where was it on the risk threshold? I mean, could the German government have been violently overtaken?
16: No, that I don't think. And uh, thanks for repeating the question because I hadn't answered it. Um, I think that the, the conspiracists were led by I, the notion that if they uh, stormed the federal legislature, the Bundestag, in sort of repeat of January 6th, uh, the storming of the Capitol, that they could then overthrow the government i think that is wildly uh, underestimating both stability of germany's institutions and i think the mood in the german public and the two leadership figures that they had um identified a um, a older gentleman from a minor princely family in east germany and a retired judge who had been a former parliamentarian of the hard right party afd um If you look at their biographies, uh, I think nothing suggests that they would be effective leaders. (laughs) What is really concerning about this plot, though, is that it involves apparently uh, retired and active members of Germany's security services, including at least one active member of an uh, elite forces unit where um, the previous defense minister, Anna Greg Kamkarber had already cracked down and dissolved a a whole company because of right-wing infiltration. This suggests that that process has been ongoing.
15: Well, and that they are actively recruiting from inside the police force now. This would suggest something that is far more systemic in terms of risk.
16: Well... Look, I think we've all seen uh, on, on all Western societies a great deal of insecurity and concern and a yearning for order and security um, as a cause of the pandemic of international disruptions, beginning really with the global financial crisis 10, year, 10 years ago and now with an attack by Russia and Ukraine that has global um, implications in terms of harpening inflation and energy prices. That, I think, you know creates a climate in which, in which people become susceptible and vulnerable. But uh, I would caution against assuming that the entirety of the German security services are infiltrated, and we have known for quite a long time that the hard right in Germany was trying to tunnel into the services. I'm pretty sure that the German security services have... Uh, have a, have an eye on this, but um, we did have a former head of domestic intelligence until a couple years ago, who turned out to be quite right, right-wing himself, and who had to leave. And uh, the, the hard crackdown uh, dates back to a year or two, really.
15: So, I mean, Germany Germany obviously has a long history with extremist groups. Uh, it has mm-hmm. dealt with them for a long time. Uh, the reporting out of this plot suggests says that QAnon is a group that have, has been influential in this plot. Also, uh, a group called Reichsberger. Can you yes. can you explain what that group is about and, and what this plot reveals about how, how the far-right movement
16: in Germany has evolved? Sure. So QAnon, as you know, um, started off in the United States but has many adherents in other societies, including in Western Europe. Uh, and that's certainly the case in Germany. And the Reichsburger um, have, I think, equivalents, although they don't come from the U.S. They have equivalents, you know, the folks who... Um, uh, sort of barricade themselves on ranches and don't accept uh, the power of the federal government. Um, that That's what these people are. They don't accept the sovereignty of the Federal Republic of Germany and they want to reinstate a pre-democratic government. Um, that's what the prince was was intended for, it appears. Um, they many of their ideas seem ludicrous, and and they indulge in you know global conspiracy theories laced with anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, they believe in Satanism and pedophilia pa- rings. Uh, all that sounds uh, fam- familiar, probably to your listeners. But I think what's important to understand is that um, external powers, uh, namely Russia, have been um, using this kind of messaging themselves. Uh, Vladimir Putin himself only a few weeks ago um, gave a speech in which he which he ranted at length about Satanism and and so there is also an external connection here that uh, we might be seeing mm-hmm. um Appear more more clearly in, in in the coming weeks and days.
15: Uh, and of course, there's the rise uh, institutionally of the AFD, the far right party, which gives them a more mainstream Absolutely. voice. You, I just in closing, you referenced January sixth earlier in our conversation. I mean, we still are living through the effects of the attempt to overturn a democratic election. What are going to mm. be the long term effects of this in Germany, both for the German psyche and democratic institutions? Just a few seconds.
16: Honestly, if I'm looking at the reactions now, they're relatively calm. Uh, I think if the if these um, conspirators wanted to undermine German governments and um, make people insecure, I think they, they showed the opposite. And I think maybe also German police intended this as a pretty massive show of force. I think that's on the whole relatively reassuring, but we will absolutely have to dig deeper in this.
15: Konstantin Steltenmuller is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We appreciate your time and perspective this morning. Thank you.
16: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Have a good day.
14: U.S. Navy SEALs, the elites of the elite, have modified their notoriously grueling basic training. They did that after a recruit died earlier this year. But some families worry the changes don't go far enough. Here's Steve Walsh in San Diego.
17: Five days of little sleep and almost constant exertion is seen as a central part of what makes a SEAL. Here's how one anonymous retired SEAL put it in the official U.S. Navy SEAL podcast.
18: Hell Week is our primary filter to truly test the resiliency, will, determination for a young man to become
17: a SEAL. In February, 24-year-old SEAL candidate Kyle Mullen died of pneumonia just after finishing the punishing Hell Week. Part of Basic Underwater Demolition Seal, or BUDS. It's basic training for seals. His mother, Regina Mullen, says she's gone through her own hell since his death as she tries to get answers.
9: Before he left, I said, if something happens to you, how am I going to live my life? He said, Mom, you're the strongest person I know. You'll be fine. I said, no, I won't.
17: Mullen had been left in the barracks under the supervision of other recruits coughing up blood and sputum. Mullen FaceTimed his mother, who is a nurse. A few hours later, he was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital after paramedics tried to revive him. A recent Navy report says Mullen was not tested for pneumonia even when his symptoms became severe. And when I
9: asked them why wasn't he sent to medical, they don't really give you an answer. They'll say, well, um, he didn't want to go. I'm like, "Okay, so how could someone not sleep for five days on low oxygen, off their mental status, even know how sick they are? That's what the medical team's for. Does he know how bad he is?
17: Group Strep A, the type of pneumonia that killed Mullen, is well known in military circles. There have been numerous outbreaks over the years, mostly at basic training. Several Marines from nearby Camp Pendleton were hospitalized during a 2019 outbreak. Paul Graff is a microbiologist with Navy Medicine in San Diego.
19: It's spread by respiratory droplets, people who are living in close proximity When you talk about military recruits all living in the same room and breathing on each other.
17: In a small number of people, including those under stress, it can turn into a potentially deadly form of pneumonia. Regular Navy at boot camp inoculates its recruits with antibiotics that prevent the spread. That protection wouldn't have helped Mullen by the time he got to BUDS, Graf says.
19: Anyone who had gotten that in boot camp, it's worn off by then. So it's not a vaccine that lasts either for your lifetime or it lasts for years and years and years.
17: SEALs only started inoculating its recruits during BUDS after Mullen's death. They're making other changes, including more detailed medical screenings before training. SEAL basic training has earned a grueling reputation, in part because of a notoriously high failure rate. Nearly 70% of enlisted SEALs fail, mostly by hell week but Naval Academy officers have an 89% success rate, mainly because they go through years of training and evaluation before they arrive. Former Navy seal officer, Jeff Butler.
19: I absolutely think they want to make the enlisted pipeline more professionalized and better at preparing those guys. Yes. I think that's been a goal for a long time.
17: The secretiveness of the community makes it hard to get answers. Adia Vetter's husband, Robert died at Bud's in 2004. It took her a decade before his former classmates revealed Vetter collapsed during a forced run after he fell behind.
20: I know that he wasn't going to give up and he just kept pushing and pushing, and which is crazy, but um, can't believe it probably would still affect me this long.
17: To regain the trust of families who have lost loved ones in training, Vetter says the Navy should create a more independent process that takes death investigations out of the hands of the Navy. Under the glare of the spotlight, the SEALs are also expected to look at the use of performance-enhancing drugs among students. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in San Diego.
14: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, mobile home parks are one of Massachusetts's dwindling affordable housing options. Now many face an uncertain future. It's 720.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. BassBerry Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the holiday pops helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops. Now through December 24th, HolidayPops.org.
0: A high near 50 today under sunny skies. It might be a bit windy. Tonight, mostly clear skies and lows around 31. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday with a high near 44. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston at 720.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Mobile home parks have long been an affordable place to live. Now, amid a nationwide housing crisis, that's changing. Big investment firms have been buying up sites across the country, including ones in Massachusetts. That's alarmed residents who are concerned about what it means for their future. In the first of our two-part series on mobile home parks, WBUR's Simon Rios shows us how corporate ownership is upending the lives of people in one park north of Boston.
21: Step in there. 84-year-old John Piazza jumps at the chance to show off what he's collected inside his mobile home.
2: And where do you see the height of your shoulders? Where? I see oh, yeah. a doll. Oh, that doll? 1920s wind-up? And it works. It walks beside a little girl. You wind it up, it's 100 years old.
21: That's just one of the thousands of toys, tools, and pictures that fill his old roller home trailer. Piazza has lived in the 720 square foot home in Revere for 22 years. He moved to Lee's trailer park from Boston after his rent quintupled with the end of rent control. I lived in Boston since I was
2: a child. I was born there. The rent control was shot down, and from 150 I was paying rent, I got a
21: notice, your rent is now 1000 Mobile home parks have become a refuge for thousands of people who can't afford skyrocketing rents and home prices. Living in a park typically means owning a mobile home, which costs a quarter the price of typical single-family houses in Massachusetts. Piazza says buying a mobile home was a better deal than staying in the North End. I said, let me look at it, and I fell in love with it. I said, wow,
2: this is bigger than my apartment. And, uh, and I bought it, 20,000. I became rich here, because the rent was a massive $135 a month.
21: That was the amount he first paid to rent the land under his mobile home. The lot fee has since increased to 575 a month, still a fraction of what he'd pay to rent an apartment in Revere today. Piazza was planning to spend the rest of his days at Lee's Trailer Park, but last year it was sold to an entity run by Boston investment firm Helg Capital. The company started evicting people to make way for a new housing development. Piazza recalls standing outside with his neighbors as one of them saw his house being destroyed.
2: And the machine called a bobcat The person that runs the machine put the top jaw on top and the bottom jaw above the metal frame and squish and that whole wall
21: came off. The park's new owners wouldn't agree to an interview, but in a statement they said they have treated every resident fairly. They've also been compensating residents for the value of homes that can't easily be moved. Some people say they've collected $5,000 or more, the park's former owner, William Setapan says he feels for some of the people whose trailers were crushed, but... whoa, well, they're that... paying the people, though.
18: Yeah.
2: So in other words, say he wants a leaf and then we'll give you whatever.
21: And he agrees to take it. They ain't doing nothing wrong. They ain't forcing no one to take it. Setapan also says closing lees could make way for hundreds of new apartments or condos on the site. That would be a big improvement over the current park, he says adding that it's long been dogged by drugs and crime. The city should be glad that they got rid of, the, get rid of the park. Mobile park advocates agree that Lee's was in bad shape, but they blame the park's owners.
18: There's a rat bait box. Yeah. There's, this looks like there was a, certainly a home here and maybe over here where the dumpster is. Dumpsters not covered, minor things,
21: but still violations. Boston University public health instructor Ethan Mascoop sits on the state manufactured homes commission which helps mediate disputes between park owners and residents. He surveyed Lee's trailer park with two students and spotted one health violation after another even though some people still live there.
18: It looks like a remains of a war. There's stuff strewn about, there's people's some belongings, there's trash, there's some uh, remains of what were homes. Um, It's just very sad. It's very, very sad.
21: The mayor's office did not respond to multiple requests for interviews. But in the meantime, the park's population is slowly shrinking. More than 100 people have already left Lee's and just 17 mobile homes remain. Those are gradually being removed as well. The park also housed some recreational vehicles, which are easier to move if they can find another place to park. William Villanueva moved to Lee's trailer park in an RV six years ago, and he's one of the few people still there, though not by choice. I've looked and I can't find anything. He said, "There are plenty of parks, but nobody takes you in." It's even worse when you're Latino. Villanueva says the evictions have been devastating for some of the families who lived here. You see that site over there, he said? There was a family with three kids living there. Now they're on the street, parking in one place, then moving along. It's not right. On the other side of the street is John Piazza's trailer. There's a limp American flag hanging on the front and shopping carts full of random items he's been collecting. A hand-cranked apple peeler, an old board game, bizarre tools that even he doesn't know the purpose of. You want drills?
2: I got a bunch for you to take home. Look at them. Keep them. There's three or four. Keep them.
21: Piazza says the developer offered him $6,000 for his trailer, and he's slowly clearing out everything he's collected. His son, John Piazza Jr., is helping him pack and trying to persuade him to toss more of his belongings. They argue over a pile of boxes Piazza hopes a cousin will want. Look at it. Joe's auntie. Yeah, Joe's auntie's been there
2: three different times. If he doesn't take them, he doesn't want them. How do you know? Well, I don't know. If he wanted... He he's in love kid. with them. Oh, he yeah, grabbed the yeah. two bikes. Yeah,
12: yeah.
2: For him, when he grabbed those bikes, he says, wow, hello, I have two antique bikes.
21: John Jr. says it's sad to see his dad forced to leave this way. I, I mean, he's,
2: his independence is gone. Yeah, his his independence oh, is know. gone. He can walk out here, get in his car, go shopping and stuff like that. Now, exactly. you know, he's not going to be able to do that in,
21: in the city. Piazza has a lot of work to do before he goes, but at least he knows where he's headed, back to his native North End. I'm going into a plush apartment in Boston proper, by
2: the waterfront. It's called assisted living.
21: But Piazza says some of the people who once lived at Lee's Trailer Park are even worse off. They have no place to go. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. Tomorrow
0: on Morning Edition, learn how residents at one mobile home park tried to take control when their site went up for sale.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Life of Pi at the ART. See the spectacular adaptation of the beloved novel Before It Goes to Broadway now through January 29th. amrep.org The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation Helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age informed communities essential for healthy democracy KnightFoundation.org, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts, holiday gifts for the home chef, including recreational cooking and baking classes and gift certificates. Learn more at CambridgeCulinary.com.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A final vote in the House is likely today on legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriages in the U.S., The bill has already cleared the Senate, and President Biden is expected to sign it into law. The Small Business Administration says it's investigating more than a half-dozen technology companies. At issue is the enabling of fraudulent loans to small businesses in the U.S. as part of the Paycheck Protection Program. Here's NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer.
10: Financial technology companies, or fintechs, are like high-tech banks that automate financial services. The SBA let them participate in PPP because they could issue loans much faster than traditional banks. But fintechs ended up giving tens of billions of dollars to ineligible and fraudulent applicants. The SBA said it's investigating Benworth, Capital Plus, Celtic Bank, Customers Bank, Cross River Bank, Fountainhead, Harvest, and Prestamos. The agency also suspended two fintechs, Blue Acorn and Womply, from, quote, working with the SBA in any capacity. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News.
18: The World Health Organization says infections from malaria rose in 2020 and again last year as the coronavirus pandemic disrupted efforts to control the disease. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rush Noy. Massachusetts's highest court may issue a ruling that could affect tens of thousands of drunk driving cases w b war's deborah Becker has more on the arguments the Supreme Judicial Court heard yesterday.
13: The case before the SJC is one of 27,000 drunk driving cases identified as being based on breathalyzer testing that was done when some testing machines were not properly maintained. Defense attorney Murat Erkan said the court should dismiss all the cases.
7: 27,000 defendants await this court's decision to see if the right to fundamental fairness will be upheld.
13: But prosecutors argued the state has taken steps to correct testing issues and can now identify cases that were based on potentially compromised tests and determine if they should be retried. An SJC ruling is expected by summer.
0: For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The Environmental Protection Agency says that the company in charge of cleaning up the Pilgrim nuclear power plant may not dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. W.B. Barbara Moran reports.
9: In a letter to the company, Holtec, the EPA said that unauthorized discharges into the bay would be an illegal violation of the Clean Water Act. The 1.1 million gallons of water was used to cool spent nuclear fuel rods. At a public meeting last week, Holtec senior compliance manager David Noyes said the company would seek a new wastewater permit from the EPA, but might also dump wastewater without one. According to the EPA, the company has not yet applied for a new permit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
0: There's a big school sports summit at the Garden today. Its goal is to find ways to prevent bullying, hazing, and other hate incidents. Bob Baldwin is the head of the Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association.
14: The ultimate goal is to make sure that in locker rooms and on practice fields that people know that this is the culture here and our culture is without
5: hate. Our culture is without bias. Our culture is inclusiveness, that everybody participates and everybody feels safe and comfortable.
0: Representatives from New England's professional sports teams will be there, along with Governor-elect Moore Healy and education leaders. It's 734.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Taylor Hall
0: scored twice for the Bruins last night. They beat the Avalanche 4-0 in Colorado. The Celtics won their third in a row last night. They beat the Suns 125-98 to in Phoenix. After 10 years with the Red Sox, Xander Bogarts is leaving. Multiple reports say the shortstop signed an 11-year, $280 million deal with the San Diego Padres. Sunny, windy, and around 50 today. Mostly clear in low 30s tonight. Sunny tomorrow in the low 40s. Rain and snow possible on Saturday. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 735.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jhpigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Jhpigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over 250 million dollars to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com slash share.
15: It's morning edition from NPR news. I'm Rachel Martin
1: and
14: I'm Steve Inskeep. Peru has a new president this morning. Authorities deposed and then detained the former president after he tried to dissolve the Congress there. Several things happened yesterday in the South American nation. President Pedro Castillo was facing impeachment. He suddenly went on television and said he was putting the Congress out of business. Lawmakers, security forces, and the courts did not go along and removed him instead. Reporter Simeon Tegel has been covering Lima for years. He's there in the seaside capital where all this happened. Welcome to the program.
5: Good morning, Stephen. Wow, what was it like to be in Lima yesterday? It was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, we were due to have an impeachment debate and vote uh, in the evening yesterday, and it appeared that would be when the action was. It seemed like uh, there weren't quite the votes to oust Castillo, but it was uh, very fluid, the situation. He's accused of multiple counts of corruption, but then Castillo jumped the gun in the morning and suddenly had delivered this televised address to the nation saying that he was dissolving Congress and the courts and was going to rule by decree and then launch a constituent assembly. Uh, He had no constitutional authority to do any of that. Mm. He also had no political support, and he didn't have the support, crucially, of the armed forces. Um, It appears he was desperate, I think. Uh, There's a consensus that once he was out of office, he would, and losing his presidential immunity, he would swiftly end up in jail. Congress responded by bringing forward the impeachment vote and within literally a couple of hours of his TV address he had been impeached and uh, Officially formally ousted from the presidency and then a couple of hours after that his car uh, Was caught up in Lima's traffic. Lima has appalling traffic Mm -hmm. and he was arrested and he spent his first night uh, in a cell.
14: Are you telling me that if he had done better at battling the traffic in Lima, he might have gotten away?
5: It is a possibility. He might also have gotten away if he'd done better with his political calculations and actually waited for the original impeachment vote. He might actually just have got away with it.
14: Can you explain to me how he got in such trouble? He was elected just recently. He was a leftist president, a very modest background. I'm sure some people had great hopes for him.
5: That's true. But to be fair, he was largely elected by default. Uh, He got something like 15% in the first round in a very splintered Uh, election with something like 15 different candidates and then in the runoff he was facing Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of the former now jailed dictator uh, who most uh, Peruvians find uh, completely unpalatable. So he was kind of elected by default and then he found himself in a situation where he was this leftist president from a party that describes itself as Marxist-Leninist facing a congress with a a conservative uh, majority and they've just been at war ever since Hmm. so
14: what happens to him now that he is in custody does he actually go to jail does he get out of the country what happens
5: Uh, he definitely doesn't get out of the country he's got 10 days of preliminary detention on charges of sedition and uh rebellion and he's probably looking at spending much of the rest of his life behind bars and dina bolarte the former vice president
14: is now the interim president reporter simeon tagel thanks so much
5: Thank you.
15: Here in the U.S., a pandemic-era policy that's been used to remove thousands of migrants from this country is set to end later this month. But the legal battle over this is not over. And the looming deadline has revived a fight over asylum and border security. Here's NPR's Joel Rose.
22: Just across the border from South Texas, hundreds of migrants are living in small Spartan camps scattered around Reynosa, Mexico, waiting for a chance to enter the U.S.
3: People know it, it ain't going to be easy for us.
22: Nicodemus Pierre-Louis is originally from Haiti. Like many of the migrants here, he's hoping to apply for asylum in the U.S. But he's blocked, for now, by the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42, which allow immigration authorities to quickly expel many migrants.
0: We don't know. We don't really know. We're we're just waiting
22: to see what, what will happen. There's a lot of confusion in the camp about Title 42, whether it's really ending or not. Another Haitian, who identifies himself only by his first name, Kendi, says he's eager to cross as soon as it's lifted. I need asylum, he says in Spanish. If I'm allowed to apply for asylum, I'm going. No problem. No problem. There's confusion on this side of the border, too. A federal judge found the Title 42 policy illegal and ordered it to end this month, though the Biden administration now says it wants to appeal that ruling. Meanwhile, U.S. immigration authorities are bracing for an influx of migrants who've been waiting in border communities from Reynosa to Tijuana. The looming deadline has also prompted Congress and the White House to float proposals to extend Title 42 or limit access to asylum in other ways. Immigrant advocates worry that the right to seek asylum is still in jeopardy.
9: It's deeply disappointing that they could even be considering this policy.
22: Robin Barnard is a lawyer with the nonprofit Human Rights First. She's talking about a policy from the administration of former President Donald Trump that the Biden administration is reportedly thinking of reviving. That's according to reporting from Axios and other outlets. The policy would deny asylum to migrants if they've already passed through other countries on the way to the U.S. The Trump administration tried that, but it was blocked in court. Barnard and other immigrant advocates say they're ready to sue the Biden administration.
9: And if the administration makes the mistake of going down this path, we will fight tooth and nail against it again.
22: Immigration hardliners have been trying for years to limit who can apply for asylum. They argue that many migrants are abusing the U.S. system because they know they'll be able to live and work in the country for years while waiting for their claims to be heard in immigration courts. Here's Senator Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio, at a congressional hearing last month
2: the asylum system is not fixed, this won't
22: end. We've got a crisis. And if we don't fix this crisis at the border, we'll continue to see these same results. Some of Portman's colleagues in the Senate have floated their own proposal. Senators Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat from Arizona, and Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina, reportedly want to extend Title 42 restrictions as part of a broader deal. that would also dedicate more funds for border security and create a pathway to citizenship for young immigrants known as DREAMers. Immigrant advocates welcomed the idea of bipartisan negotiations, but not the extension of Title 42. Angela Kelly is a former Biden administration advisor who's now with the American Immigration Lawyers Association.
23: If we just keep trying to extend Title 42, we're only putting a a Band-Aid on what is something that does need some far greater attention.
22: Kelly says many of the migrants coming to the border are fleeing failed states in Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba and Haiti. She'd like to see the Biden administration open more pathways so that these migrants don't have to cross the border illegally, like a recent program for Venezuelans who have sponsors in the U.S
23: if you create legal pathways for people, people would much rather come with you know, a visa than with a smuggler, rather than trying to build metaphorical or actual walls to keep people out. That won't work.
22: Simply turning away migrants under Title 42 hasn't worked either, she argues. And it's time to try the carrot, not just the stick. Joel Rose, NPR News.
15: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, as the World Cup wraps up, a look at U.S. club youth soccer. Participating is too expensive for many families. And in our next hour, the implications of Saudi Arabia hosting China's Xi Jinping. Clear and bright skies today with temperatures around 50 and some gusty winds. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston at 743.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters. A new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at mos.org.
0: Now, in business news, state lawmakers are joining service workers at Logan Airport this morning for a one-day strike. The union, representing Swissport USA employees, says the airport's cabin cleaners and ramp workers are picketing against low wages and unfair labor practices. Massachusetts is giving $50 million to companies that can help the state meet its decarbonization goals. The money is being offered through the Massachusetts Clean Energy Council. Companies with products that can help the state reach its goal are eligible for grants of up to $1.5 million. It's 745.
12: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way2wealth.
15: Morning edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm
14: Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Americans did not get that far in the World Cup this year, but soccer continues to grow in the United States. In fact, some families are spending small fortunes to let their kids play club or travel soccer. NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports.
24: At a recent U 15 soccer game, club teams from Loudoun County, Virginia, and D.C. faced
9: off.
24: After the game I caught up with soccer parent Kevin Salandi.
7: This is the the Mecca of pizza play, right? Because it's Loudoun County. There's a lot of money in London County. That's why they have all of these teams and these facilities.
24: Salandi, a software consultant, says it's not cheap.
7: Across my three kids, probably spend about $10,000 a year.
24: Some families make the investment because they can. It's fun for their kids, good exercise, and they get experience playing on a team. Lindsey Blum, a professor of sport and exercise psychology at Ball State University, says club soccer has its advantages. If you're looking at it from a youth development standpoint, then
15: there are certainly benefits that come out of it.
24: But for some families, it's more serious. At a game in Maryland, I talked to Peter Guthrie, a longtime youth soccer referee and former coach.
2: In some cases, they believe that this is going to be the path for a child to get to college. You know, So they have to do well as a 10-year-old in order to get that college scholarship.
24: There are a lot of problems with the pay-to-play system. First off, a fraction of high school soccer players get scholarships and an even smaller fraction go on to play professionally. Second, no guarantees. I asked Lindsey Blum if paying to play equals winning. So that is the myth that I would say that people
15: think, that the more I put into my child's sport experience financially, the more successful they're going to be and the more they're going to get out of it. And we do not find that
24: to be the case. Another problem with pay to play, Kids who can't afford club soccer could play on their high school teams where it's generally free. But in tryouts, they often have to compete against more experienced kids who can pay for clubs.
8: We are just structurally pushing aside kids who want to play a game that is accessible around the world to kids of all income categories.
24: Tom Ferry is executive director of the Sports and Society Program at the Aspen Institute.
8: The fundamental flaw in American youth sports, and in particularly soccer, is we are sorting the weak from the strong well before kids grow into their bodies, their minds, and their interests.
24: Ferry says because there's money in it, more and more clubs are being offered and to younger and younger kids.
8: By creating these travel teams at ever earlier ages, we're pushing aside the late bloomer. We're pushing aside the kid from the lower income home that can't afford the youth sports arm race or doesn't have a a second parent in the home to drive them to these endless array of practices and games, some of which are two counties away or sometimes two states away.
24: Now, there are efforts around the country to level the playing field. Some clubs offer scholarships. In Washington, D.C., soccer coach Pierre Hedgie co-founded a club that's a hybrid business model.
21: Some are paying, but some are not paying, right? Because the thing is that we won't be able to help the next kid. So if you can afford to pay the whole thing, yeah, pay the whole thing. So that way we can afford to help the next kid that can't pay anything at all.
24: It was Hedgie's club DC11 that played against the Loudoun County team in Virginia. Hedgie's team won by a lot. <laughs> Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
14: Goal! This is NPR News. It's too late. Oh, well.
0: I'm Rupa Chanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tisiana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tisiana.
10: Rupa.
9: Good morning. Back <laughs> to the normal schedule this morning. Good to talk to you. Fun. Uh, it's so much great stuff on the show today. I'm going to hit two things with you. We've got a new segment that we've been doing called Budget Boston, mm-hmm. where, like it sounds, we talk about how do you how do you make your way in Boston on a tight budget. And That's we actually, such a good idea. Right? It? Well, and, and so many people are asking about it. So we have a financial planner, coming in uh, many of our subtext are our, our texting group members sending questions we'll do everything from which debt do I pay off first can anybody have a financial planner How do I think about paying money for rent versus trying to buy a house? You know, all kinds of practical things. That's awesome. Yeah, tons of questions from listeners on this. And then um, it is the 50th anniversary of a newsletter called 9 to 5. Mm -hmm. Yep, the Dolly Parton song. I know. (laughs) It is in my morning rotation. It's definitely one of the songs I sing on the way to work, but I will spare you. Thank you. But we will play it this afternoon. And one of the founders of the 9 to 5 movement, which transformed women's work, is coming in with some union members. That's so fun. Thank you.
0: That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. It's 7.50.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday
0: evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story, live at the Omni Parker House in Boston, Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Sponsored in part by
15: Barely Read Books.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inske.
15: And I'm Rachel Martin.
14: We're gonna hold on.
15: Tammy Wynette loved George Jones before she met him. She was the aspiring country singer. He was already a legend. When they finally did meet, they fell madly in love and made beautiful music. But it was a tough road. He was an alcoholic, she was addicted to painkillers, and the songs that would come to define them were confessions of the real pain they were living through. Their stories being told in the limited Showtime series, George and Tammy, and the singing voices you hear belong to the actors themselves. Jones is played by Michael Shannon.
25: The song I really love at least of the solo stuff is uh the door to hear that sound and to know it's really over
15: tammy Wynette is played by jessica chastain i loved singing help me make it through the night
26: i don't wanna be alone help me make it
15: the i asked both actors what it was like for them to be connected to each other in those harmonies
25: yeah it's kind of spooky you know we worked on it such a long time before we even started shooting we had a kind of a music boot camp with our vocal coach ron browning out of nashville i think it was a couple of months we just went in monday through friday and just sang all day and for him his approach was you know very much geared towards that intimacy, you know he would have us sing the songs sitting on a piano bench with our knees touching you know and staring at each other and wow and That's um, yeah it's it's really heavy you know it's like uh, because you know the singing ideally is um, coming from somewhere very deep inside of you and and you're sharing that with somebody else and It was hard sometimes to maintain the the eye contact without getting, you know, kind of overwhelmed.
15: There's an authenticity that you really can't fake when you're singing songs and looking into someone's eyes, Jessica.
26: Yeah, there was a, Ron actually had us one day Sing a song to each other, one of our solos, and the other person got to choose which song they wanted to be sung to them, hmm. and then just stare at each other and sing the song. I have never done that before. Right. <laughs> I mean, Mike, maybe I'm, I maybe I misjudged. It seemed like it was pretty easy for him, hmm. but I was such a, you know, wreck of nerves, and it's incredibly vulnerable. But I, th- I think what I loved about this series is the songs weren't ever set up as like, oh, here's the musical number. It was set up almost like a monologue. It's like, okay, or a scene between us. We're communicating what's happening emotionally on the music.
15: Yeah. What did each of you know about George Jones and Tammy Wynette before you saw the script?
25: Oh, I didn't know much at all. I mean, um, I'm from Kentucky originally, so I guess most people assume if you're from Kentucky, you grow up with country music in the house, but uh, I didn't. Um, my only exposure really was uh, we would watch Hee Haw on TV sometimes. And, <laughs> but uh, it was funny, uh, as soon as I signed on and I started telling my friends that uh, I was playing George Jones, it, it shocked me how many people there were in my life that were huge fans. And, no, uh really? I had no idea. And they are like, oh, you're playing George? they'd say oh he's a character and they tell the stories and i mean it was frankly i think part of his appeal you know i think uh some of these figures in country music or in music in general they're kind of um fascinating because they're such train wrecks you know yeah. and people want to see when is this person going to fall apart mm. can they literally you know do all of this harm to themselves and still walk out on stage and sing a song. Yeah. And and when they do that, it, there's this unfortunate kind of exhilaration about it. Like, wow, look at that. That's oh. amazing. You know, <laughs> it's this person's kind of beating the tar out of themselves.
15: Jessica, what did you learn about Tammy that you hadn't known before?
26: I probably misjudged her. You know, there's this idea of Stand By Your Man and Run Woman Run, you know, a lot of these songs are, you know, you you need a man in your life, you got to run back to him because you may not find someone else, or there was this whole feminist movement against Stand By Your Man and the Hillary Clinton controversy when she said, I'm no Tammy Wynette standing by my man. It's just, it caused such a hoopla. I think for me, it felt like, wow, I'm really going to cross a bridge here. How am I going to relate to this person? And then the more reading I did about her, I was just really shocked by everything she went through and I developed this empathy. I kind of, I guess I was more, I felt more shame about myself for my misjudgments and preconceived ideas of who she was. Because you thought she was just this person who just sublimated herself to the men around her? Yeah, well, that's, I, I imagine that she was, in some sense, a bad example for women. Mm. The reality is, she was, when she shut up in Nashville, she shut up with three kids. She was a single, divorced woman. She had been institutionalized and had electric shock therapy for trying to leave her first husband. And she shut up in Nashville determined to be a singer in a time when like female singers were not really given the same respect and, and platform that men were. I mean, still to this day, there's I've talked to some people in Nashville, it's still an issue. But in the 1960s, it was really shocking. She never was anybody's doormat. She made her own decisions, her own choices. And I, I find her to be quite a formidable woman and yet she also had to play this part in order to be accepted as an
15: artist. Well, your chemistry and your artistic partnership has brought to life the partnership of these two artists, George and Tammy. It's a phenomenal show. You can catch the first episode on demand. The second one's coming up Sunday night. Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us.
26: Our
5: pleasure.
15: Thank you very, very much. We're gonna hold This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin.
14: And I'm Steve Inskeep.
7: I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Lawyers hired by former President Trump tell the Justice Department they've found more classified documents after searching Trump properties in Florida. It's Thursday, December 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, debates over the 2024 presidential primary schedule with Democrats proposing South Carolina as first in the nation. Also this hour, the Biden administration's plan to track the drug overdoses that kill nearly 100,000 Americans a year. Plus, the case before Massachusetts' highest court that could result in thousands of drunk driving convictions getting tossed out. And...
8: I think I might even be able to, like, go to Chinatown. lunch and then come back here. The excitement in
0: Medford days ahead of the opening of a long delayed expansion of the T's Green Line. In sports, Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts is headed to San Diego, sunny and near 50 today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House committee investigating last year's January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol says it will soon release its final report. NPR's Dustin Jones has more.
27: The panel said it will hold a formal presentation, which could include a hearing, the week of December 19th. Sources familiar with the committee said members are eyeing December 21st. The report is expected to include information that hasn't been made public during previous hearings. The panel, made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans, will be dissolved before the new Congress is established in early January. Former President Donald Trump, the central figure in the panel's investigation into the violence that erupted at the US Capitol, was subpoenaed by the panel in October. However, Trump has not cooperated with the committee. Dustin Jones. NPR News.
3: This morning, the House is scheduled to vote on legislation that codifies marriage rights for interracial and same-sex couples. This comes after the Supreme Court overturned abortion rights, and Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas suggested same-sex marriage could be reconsidered. The marriage measure has already passed the Senate, and President Biden says he supports it. Russia is already using drones made in Iran to attack sites in Ukraine. Now, the Biden administration is concerned Russia may try to obtain ballistic missiles from Iran as well. State Department spokesman Ned Price.
8: We don't have any information to share at this point regarding uh, current deliveries of ballistic missiles, but uh, we know that Russia's brutal assault against Ukraine has forced Russia to expend uh, its relatively scarce quantities uh, of weaponry including ballistic missiles.
3: Russian missile attacks have been hitting Ukrainian energy sites, cutting water, light, and heat to millions of people. Juan David Ortiz, the former Border Patrol supervisor accused of being a serial killer, has been found guilty of capital murder. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports.
19: Ortiz has been found guilty of the slayings of Wiesel de Cantu, Melissa Ramirez, Claudine Laura, and Janelle Ortiz. The jury proved unswayed by entreaties from Ortiz's defense team to disqualify a taped confession and the search of his truck that gave prosecutors the murder weapon. The weapon was linked through forensics to bullets recovered from the four murder scenes. Ortiz was tracked down the day after a potential fifth victim escaped. Erica Pena fled the man after he plied her with drugs and then put a gun in her face. Capital murder carries with it a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio.
3: The electricity is back on in central North Carolina. Tens of thousands of people lost power last Saturday night after someone fired on two power substations. The FBI is helping local law enforcement search for the attacker or attackers. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up more than 80 points. This is NPR. From
0: WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Chelsea gave some of its residents direct payments during a nine-month-long experiment. Now, a new Harvard study shows that most of that money was spent at grocery stores and restaurants. WBUR's Yasmin Amber reports on one of the largest basic income programs in the country. of Chelsea residents received around $400 a month during the height of the pandemic. 65% of the money was spent in places that primarily sold food. The rest went to retail purchases, services, and transportation. The study also found payment recipients worked the same number of hours as non-recipients. Jeffrey Liebman led the study and says the findings have broad implications for relief programs.
19: If you're trying to help communities that are economically struggling, there are a lot of different things you could imagine doing and a lot of complicated programs you could set up or you could give people money and let them go figure out how to solve their own problems.
6: Chelsea plans to run
0: another three-month direct payments program next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. The MBTA is getting close to having a full staff of dispatchers. That comes after a federal report found a shortage of staffers was behind some of the T's safety issues. That prompted the T to cut service on some lines. There are 27 dispatchers working for the T right now, but the organization says it wants five more. Transit officials say they aren't sure when the T will be fully back up and running. The investment company that bought a mobile home park in Revere is closing the park to make way for hundreds of new homes. Some current residents told WBR's Simon Rios that they have nowhere else to go.
21: Brenda Ladderbush has lived at Lee's Trailer Park for more than three decades, and she thought she'd be able to spend the rest of her life there, despite word for years that the former owner wanted to find a buyer.
1: It was going to sell for over 20 years and it never sold, so we kept hearing rumors, but then when the rumor came true, it was a shock. Where are you going to go? I don't know yet. I'm having a hard time because I have three animals.
21: Ladderbush is waiting to see how much the owner, Parkway Homes, will pay for her trailer, which can't easily be moved. Parkway says it plans to replace the dilapidated park with modern transit-oriented housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
0: Dozens of North Shore residents turned out at a public meeting last night to speak out against a proposed natural gas and diesel-fired power plant. The so-called Peabody Peaker plant will only run a few hundred hours a year when demand for electricity spikes. But opponents say it will still contribute to climate change and existing environmental inequities. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser.
9: The state hearing was technically limited to the facility's carbon dioxide monitoring plan. But local residents, like Susan Smoller, took the opportunity to voice other concerns. Smoller said that because the plant will be located in a state-designated environmental justice community and sit near two similar facilities, the state should conduct a comprehensive health impact assessment.
6: The burden that neighboring communities are already facing is clear.
9: The project was first proposed seven years ago. Had it been proposed more recently, though, it would have been subject to much stricter environmental review because state law has changed. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection is accepting public comment on the project's emission control plan until December 14th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
0: A man who spent nearly 50 years in prison before his conviction was tossed out is due back in court today. Raymond Gaines will find out whether or not the Suffolk DA will retry his case. Gaines was convicted of a murder in Roxbury in the 70s. The judge who overturned his conviction tells the Boston Globe that witness testimony in the case was unreliable. Gaines was freed from prison last year. It's 808.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate.
0: Xander Bogarts is going from the Red Sox to the Padres. Multiple reports say the shortstop signed an 11-year, $280 million deal with San Diego after a decade playing for Boston. The Celtics won a battle of first-place teams last night. They beat the Suns 125-98 to in Phoenix. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown both scored 25 points. The Bruins began their Western road trip last night with a 4-0 shutout of the Avalanche in Denver. Sunny today with a high in the lower 50s, clear overnight with temperatures falling to around 30, sunny again tomorrow, and in the mid-50s, we could see a little rain and maybe even a snow shower on Saturday. It's 48 degrees in Boston
10: at 809. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at
14: DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
15: And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Okay, Saudi Arabia has a whole lot of oil. China has a whole lot of everything else, which means the country's leaders will have a lot to talk about.
14: Yeah, China's leader Xi Jinping is on a three-day visit to Saudi Arabia and is expected to meet with Mohammed bin Salman, the powerful crown prince, along with some other leaders from around the Persian Gulf. So what would a closer relationship between those nations mean for the United States?
15: NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam is with us. Hey, Jackie.
14: Good morning, Rachel.
15: What do the Saudis, what do the Chinese, what do each camp want through this summit?
6: Well, broadly, it's an opportunity to help cement relations between the two countries. And the Saudis say they're going to sign a strategic partnership with Xi uh, while he's in Riyadh, as well as some energy deals. The two nations have strong ties. Saudi Arabia is one of China's largest suppliers of oil and China is the kingdom's biggest trading partner. Chinese companies you know, have major infrastructure projects in Saudi Arabia, such as ports and telecommunications and are looking for more investment opportunities. But Equally important uh, is the symbolism of Xi's visit, which shows that Saudi Arabia has other options than the U.S. and it may be recalibrating
15: its foreign policy. Hmm. I mean, Xi's visit to, to Saudi Arabia comes just months after President Biden was there. Explain the difference between the U.S. and Chinese approaches to Saudi Arabia.
6: Well, both Beijing and Washington are competing for influence in Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf region. China's approach to the kingdom is more transactional. And as I mentioned, Xi's visit will be geared to opening more investment opportunities and securing an important energy source for China. On the other hand, U.S. presidents traditionally have had, a, had personal relationships with Saudi kings. And this, that's not true with President Biden and the crown prince. They have quite a frosty relationship but even so the U.S. and Saudi relationship has been built for decades on security strategy like regional stability and opposing Iran and you can't underestimate that Um, but over the past few years especially since the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman became the de facto leader you've seen Saudi Arabia indicate that it doesn't want to be beholden to the U.S. it considers itself a modern and rich nation that wants to make its own decisions. And that goes for the other Gulf nations, you know, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar. They want to keep their options open and go where their interests lie. Mm -hmm.
15: Neither China nor Saudi Arabia are democracies, right? Does that endear them to each other in a way that could undermine democracy elsewhere?
6: Well, both men are considered autocrats. Xi Jinping recently locked in his position as China's leader for the third term, and the crown prince is expected to be king one day. You know, the two leaders probably won't be discussing human rights during this visit. Unlike the U.S., China isn't going to bring up the murder of uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi agents a few years ago. But, you know, having said all that, there is a place for the U.S. still, and it could depend on who is president. Uh, the crown prince had a very strong relationship with former President Trump, and who knows if and how relations could change depending on who's in the White House.
15: NPR's Jackie Northam. Thanks, Jackie.
14: Thanks, Rachel. Now let's bring in Yuizhia, Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House, a think tank in London. Her focus is China's relations with the Middle East and Gulf states, right on point. Welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Stephen. What interests do these two authoritarians really share?
20: Well, I think there's a plenty of things, as your correspondent laid it out, really. I mean, it's a very much a transactional bilateral relationship between China and Saudi Arabia. And also, obviously, China is much larger um, exporter and importer within the region, in the MENA region, than compared with the United States. So I think it's a largely China's interest within Arab states are uh business approaches um foreign direct investment and seeking new market for the chinese companies so Ah, i think it's really largely within economic side of the story
14: let's talk about that you talked about foreign direct investment jackie referred Mm -hmm. to more investment opportunities i am aware that the saudis in addition to wanting to sell oil have wanted money investment to diversify their own economy and add to the oil economy is china willing to put a lot of money in
20: Well, I think China is not just only willing to put money, in, but also willing to put its expertise in terms of building infrastructures and also looking for a new market for the state-owned enterprises and which they're good at making infrastructure. I mean, obviously, the the physical infrastructure. So that's one thing. But secondly, there's also um, if Beijing is really in the mindset of thinking is energy security. And obviously, Saudi Arabia is the number one provider for that for Beijing. So I think it's very much based on transactional approach and business mindset. Yeah.
14: Well, now as you're talking, I'm thinking of a concern the United States has raised. The United States has warned against countries in in Africa and elsewhere in the global south accepting too many Chinese investments because they fear that what the Chinese are really going for is control. Does the United States have something really to worry about when a historic US ally like Saudi Arabia builds closer relations with China and seeks Chinese investment?
20: Well, let's look into this. I mean, not necessarily. Um, I think on the one hand we can all agree that China's uh, economic presence in the the region are extremely strong. But on the other hand, I do not think Beijing will be able to replace the existing security role that the United States has been traditionally provided within the region. So that really puts the United States and China in a different end of a spectrum when it comes to developing relationship with Saudi Arabia and other Middle East countries.
14: Meaning that both the United States and China can have their own relations with Saudi Arabia and it doesn't particularly harm either one.
20: Well, I think obviously China taking, as I said, more transactional approach rather than military allies or China has no interest in get involved in East in terms of military interventions and so on and so forth. So obviously China is actually quite happy to let the United States do the heavy lifting regarding providing regional security. Whereas China is behind and um, conducting business as usual approach.
14: Hmm. I'm also thinking that neither China nor Saudi Arabia really went along with the U.S. effort to isolate Russia at the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Saudis weren't really on board. The Chinese, of course, had a semi-alliance with Russia. But now that war is going very badly for Russia. How are they viewing Russia now?
20: Well, I think Chinese is gradually um, changing its position regarding Russia. And obviously, as what we can see so far with the G20 joint statement and China, and also together with the other countries that really denouncing this war. So that's one sign of differences. But on the other hand, I think China's concern with Russia is more to do with the geography, that given the two countries share 4,300 kilometers borders and China will have to handle Russia well, I think on the other hand for Saudi Arabia it is more about what kind of security role that Russia will be able to play within the Middle East in the future. So I think both those- both China and um, Saudi Arabia obviously see the war not eye to eye with the United States, but for completely different reasons.
14: One other thing: this visit for China, Xi, comes at a moment when his government at home is lifting COVID restrictions under a lot of pressure, including domestic protest. Is is she just a little bit less powerful, a little bit weaker than he has been in the past?
20: Uh, not necessarily. I think I would consider the sense of public defiance, which happened 10 days ago in China. And then he decided to make a quite swift U-turn, which surprised many, even China itself. So it's not necessarily of like being weaker or stronger. It's more about if the people have spoken and the government will have to listen.
14: Okay. Yui is a senior research fellow at the Chatham House think tank in London. Thank you so much.
20: Thank you.
15: More than 100,000 Americans are dying from drug overdoses every year. For the first time, the Biden administration has unveiled a national system designed to track opioid overdoses in real time. Officials say the data will improve the public health response and help save lives. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports.
4: Since the opioid crisis began in the late 90s, federal agencies have struggled to track drug overdoses. Information is often spotty and months or years out of date. Critics say the lack of data is crippling efforts to help people. Here's Congressman David Trone from
22: Maryland.
12: It is absolutely a monstrous failure of government to be able to report on real time what's happening. And the excuses are unending.
4: This morning, the Biden administration moved to close that data gap, launching a new website that will report non-fatal overdoses nationwide, involving opioids like heroin, prescription pain pills, and fentanyl. The information is being collected by EMS-first responders across the country and will be updated quickly, every two weeks.
2: We have never had a national picture of this type.
4: Dr. Rahul Gupta heads the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Speaking with reporters, he said this data, gathered at the county level, will guide a more targeted, effective response in communities where overdoses are spiking.
2: We could be seeing tens of thousands of additional lives saved. And this will allow us to get there.
4: This overdose data system still won't be comprehensive. It tracks only opioids, not other drugs. It also doesn't include information about drug overdoses gathered from other sources, such as hospitals and university researchers. Still, addiction experts say this will be an important tool. Erin Artigiani is at the Center for Substance Abuse Research at the University of Maryland.
23: I think it's a big step and it's an important first step. I think it's crucial to have complete and relatively real-time data. I think that's something that researchers and policymakers alike have been talking about for some time now.
4: The stakes are high. A study released this year by the medical journal, The Lancet, predicted the US will see another 1.2 million opioid overdose deaths by the end of this decade. The hope is with better, faster information, a lot of those lives can be saved. Ryan Mann, NPR News.
15: listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shenoy. There's breaking news this morning that American basketball star Brittany Griner is heading back home. U.S. officials say she was released from a Russian prison this morning as part of a prisoner swap. The U.S. will release Russian arms dealer in exchange. Russia sentenced Griner to nine years in prison on drug charges that the Biden administration says were trumped up. Listen to WBUR and go to WBUR.org throughout the day for updates on the story. Coming up on Morning Edition, the MBTA's long-delayed Green Line expansion is days away from opening. We talked to some soon-to-be writers. And why some are arguing that the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court should overturn thousands of drunk-driving convictions. It's 821.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a principal prep program. Apply now for January at williamjames.edu. In 2017, the battle to retake
1: Mosul from ISIS raised the Iraqi city to the ground.
13: The first time when I stepped into the old town of Mosul, I said, there is no way this could be rebuilt.
16: Five years later... The old town now is a completely different city. From a ghost town into a city, vibrating with light, with colors. That's On Point this morning at 10
1: on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: A high near 50 today under sunny skies. It might be a bit windy. Tonight, mostly clear skies and lows around 30. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday with a high near 44. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston at 822.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And- this
0: is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shunoy. After years of delays, T-Riders will be able to take the green line all the way to Medford on Monday. That's when the newest extension opens. WBR's Walter Wuthman talked with some of the neighbors now that the trains are finally pulling in.
7: Two-year-old Sam McDonough sits in his stroller above Medford-Tuff station and watches trains conduct test runs on the new track. Choo-choo. 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 Green Line. (laughs) His mother, Carly Nesson, says they plan to ride the train into Boston the first day it's open, and many times after.
1: I think the Museum of Science is something we're most excited for.
7: For Sam's entire life, the Green Line extension has been delayed. The $2.3 billion project was originally supposed to be completed in 2014. But the first new station in Somerville's Union Square didn't open until March, eight years behind schedule. And the MBTA kept pushing the deadline for the Medford branch even further. There was a date set for May, then end of summer, then November. Now, the first trains are finally set to open their doors at five new stations Monday morning. Can I trust them? (laughs) That's Loring too. He's a professor of mathematics at Tufts. He says he's excited to use the train.
8: I think I might even be able to, like, go to Chinatown for lunch and then come back here.
7: Food was also on the minds of Tufts sophomores Charles Mitchell and Rafi Ayeni. I asked where they planned to take their first ride.
21: Cane chicken. <laughs> Cane chicken fingers, most definitely.
7: Right now, Mitchell says the trip is a schlep.
21: Since we live all the way across campus, we have to take the shuttle to Davis to get on the red line to go to Park Street, and this just takes us directly there.
7: Nearby at Picante Taqueria, manager Maria Ramirez works the register. This is good for the business. Ramirez says the Taqueria has already seen more foot traffic from workers on the Green Line project. Now, they expect to get more commuters too.
24: Yep, with the train, new students this year, We had new faces, and and I told you, families, too.
7: But the new stations have downsides. Justin Hollander is a professor of urban planning at Tufts who studied the Green Line extension.
16: In anticipation of these new stops opening up, uh, real estate prices have, have grown quite significantly.
7: Hollander says some renters are already getting priced out of the area. He says cities like Medford and Somerville should do more to develop affordable housing. Meanwhile, current owners are touting the new Green Line stations in real estate ads, and the promise will soon be reality. The first Green Line train is scheduled to open its doors at 445 in Medford Monday morning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: Massachusetts's highest court is considering a case that some say could become another state crime lab debacle and result in the dismissal of tens of thousands of drunk driving cases. The state Supreme Judicial Court heard arguments yesterday in a case focusing on the problems with breathalyzer testing. WBOR's Deborah Becker reports. The testing has been problematic
13: for years. At one point, prosecutors weren't even allowed to use the results as evidence. Defense attorney Murat Erkon told the SJC yesterday that his client, Lindsay Hallinan, would not have pleaded to sufficient facts in her case in 2013 if he had known there were questions about the test's accuracy.
22: It is the
7: centerpiece of every OUI case. It's the gold standard. It's the, it's the confession. It's the fingerprint. It's the DNA match.
13: Aircon pointed to a state investigation that showed 27,000 drunk driving cases might have been based on testing from machines that weren't properly calibrated, so the results couldn't be considered accurate. He said the state should consider all the potentially affected cases.
7: 27,000 defendants whose convictions or admissions arose in the shadow of government misconduct await this court's decision to see if the right to fundamental fairness will be upheld.
13: That state investigation also found that the Office of Alcohol Testing, which oversees breathalyzers, tried to cover up the problems. But Essex County Assistant District Attorney David O'Sullivan told the justices yesterday that not all the testing was faulty. O'Sullivan also said the state investigation resulted in an agreement to provide public information about each testing
7: machine the parties agreed to far-reaching remedial measures. Every document pertaining to those machines is now in a database that is easily navigable.
13: O'Sullivan also said that, unlike the drug lab scandals where two former state chemists were convicted of misconduct, the machine that provided the evidence in a specific drunk driving case could be identified. So he argued some cases might then be reconstructed and retried. But Justice Frank Gaziano said that state investigation, quote, makes your blood boil. Gaziano asked why the SJC shouldn't just do what it did in the drug lab scandals and dismiss all the cases.
2: We have people purposefully hiding evidence from defense counsel and the prosecutors and the court. Why isn't this a dismissal with prejudice?
13: A ruling from the SJC is expected by the summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: This is 90.9 WBR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, rising concerns among members of both parties as Democrats move to shake up their primary calendar and Republicans commit to the status quo. It's
10: 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at Bassberry.com.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy.
16: I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.
0: I'm Tiziana
10: Deering. This
9: is Radio Boston.
16: I'm Scott Tong.
10: I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered.
1: We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says U.S. Olympian and WNBA star Brittany Griner has been released from prison in Russia and is on her way back to the U.S. A short time ago on Twitter, Biden said he'd spoken to Griner. The president is expected to make remarks shortly. A former activist opposed to abortion rights is expected to testify before a House committee today. The one-time conservative leader says several years ago he was given secret information ahead of a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court on religious liberty. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, the reverend came forward after the high court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked.
15: In a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts and in interviews with the New York Times, the Reverend Rob Shank said he was given information about the Burwell v. Hobby Lobby case by a conservative donor weeks before the decision was announced, after she dined at the home of Justice Samuel Alito. The 2014 case centered on religious freedom issues and was seen as a victory for conservatives. Shank led an evangelical nonprofit at the time. Alito has denied leaking information to Shank's group, and the conservative donor has denied Alito told her anything about the opinion. Alito wrote the majority opinion for that case, as well as this summer's abortion decision. Watchdog groups are calling on the Supreme Court to implement an ethics code for the justices. Sarah McCammon, NPR News.
18: This is NPR News. From WBUR in
0: Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Just over half of parents in the Boston public school system believe their kids are academically on track this year. However, a new survey from the Mass Inc. polling group also finds that parents are frustrated with things like school bus service. WBR's Carrie Young reports.
15: Only about 30 percent of parents in the survey say their kid's bus was always on time. Responses also varied by race. Black, Latino, and Asian parents described their kids' buses as being late at much higher rates than white parents. Concerns over kids' emotional and physical well-being at school also varied by race. About 62% of black parents said they were very concerned about their kids' physical safety. 54% of Asian parents reported the same feelings, whereas only 32% of white parents said they were very concerned. The findings reflect a poll taken of Boston Public Schools' parents in November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: A Rhode Island man is facing charges for his alleged role in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. William Cotton of Hopkinton, Rhode Island, now faces federal charges. The FBI's Boston office says Cotton is the 18th person from the area arrested in connection with the Capitol attack. A former Natick town official was sentenced last week to 15 days in jail for her role in the riot. The Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau is getting a makeover. The group has a new name. It's now called Meet Boston, and it has a new tourism campaign called Boston Never Gets Old. Martha Sheridan is the president and CEO of Meet Boston.
23: It's really talking about how Boston is a city constantly in motion, constantly evolving, and wanting to show the world how Boston has changed and inviting them either for a first visit or a repeat visit to come and
10: explore a different Boston than they may have seen before.
0: Sheridan says the organization is marketing activities like figure skating and curling to get people into the city for the winter. It's 833.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. The
0: Bruins shut out the Avalanche 4 nothing in Denver last night. The Celtics beat the Suns 125-98 in Phoenix. Xander Bogarts is heading to the San Diego Padres. Multiple reports say the shortstop signed an 11-year, $280 million deal. Bogarts had spent his entire 10-year career with the Red Sox. Sunny, windy, and near 50 today. Mostly clear in low 30s tonight. Sunny tomorrow in the low 40s. Rain and snow possible on Saturday. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 834.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member
15: NYSE. This is NPR.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
15: And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. For generations, Iowa and New Hampshire have gone first in picking presidential nominees, but Democrats want to upend
14: that tradition. President Biden and the Democratic National Committee put forward a new calendar the other day in which South Carolina would go first, which is, of course, raising a lot of questions.
15: To answer some of them, we've got NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro with us. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Rachel. Before getting to the consequences of this change, remind us what the White House and the DNC are proposing.
27: Well, they want to kick Iowa out of the first states, demote New Hampshire, and elevate South Carolina and a few others. South Carolina would go first on February 3rd, 2024. Three days later, Nevada and New Hampshire, then Georgia a week later, and Michigan two weeks after that. Why? Why? Well, the Iowa Democratic Party, frankly, botched their vote reporting in 2020. But I have to say, that's just sort of the last crack in the dam. You know, this is a long time coming. Iowa has started to move more solidly into Republicans' column in presidential elections. And more importantly, it really doesn't reflect the growing demographic diversity of the Democratic Party. And that's a point that was emphasized by Donna Brazil, the longtime party activist and member of the committee that pushed this through. Uh, here's what she told me.
3: It's like going to a dinner party and everyone has been served an appetizer and and had the full menu. And when it comes time to dessert, we say, well, we're out of food. That's not the way we
27: should do it in the Democratic Party. She also said that Democrats are looking at potentially reassessing the calendar now every four years
15: so there are going to be people who don't like this plan south carolina clearly jumps out as a state that helped propel joe biden to the nomination it's not exactly a swing state
27: yeah and there are people who are saying exactly that you know uh, that's a point that uh shakir uh, who was bernie sanders presidential campaign manager and who is a voting dnc delegate he says that he won't be voting for this proposal because he sees south carolina as too culturally conservative that it's not going to go blue anytime soon and that it strikes him as something else. I think that President
28: Biden made a decision that smacks of political favoritism. I can respect and appreciate that the president feels fondness towards South Carolina. Those are all appropriate feelings. However, none of those feelings are uh, strategically the reason why South Carolina should go first.
27: You know, lots of others who do support this plan point out that South Carolina, in a primary, is made up of 60% black voters, and black voters, of course, are a key demographic group for Democrats. Uh, Shakir says that his point, though, is strictly about competitiveness, and that there are sizable black populations in swing states like Georgia and Michigan. Beyond demographics, though, others have really warned against having too many big states front-loaded in the calendar because it could eliminate retail politics. You know, when voters get to test candidates up close and that's the very thing that Iowa and New Hampshire were so good at.
15: So critics are making their voices heard because this is not a done deal, right?
27: Uh, Yeah, it's definitely not. States have until January 5th to go back to the DNC with a plan that shows that they'd actually be able to do this. Already Georgia looks like it might not be able to because the secretary of state's office runs elections and is insisting on having both parties primaries on the same day. And Republicans already voted on their calendar and Georgia's not in the top several states. New Hampshire, which has held the first primary for more than 100 years, is going to fight this tooth and nail and very well may go first anyway, despite some promised penalties. Including candidates who campaign there could be kept off debate stages. Uh, one thing, though, that's probably for sure Iowa is probably out. Right. Uh, no more talk of butter cows, at least for a while uh, with the Democrats.
15: NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thanks.
14: Hey, you're welcome. But if some Democrats are ready to shove Iowa down the list, Republicans are not. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports.
11: Plenty of Republicans have been in Iowa since the 2020 election, raising all kinds of questions about who might be thinking about the White House. So you'll hear this a lot from local press.
27: 2024 is right around the corner, considering presidential run.
11: Former Vice President Mike Pence got one of these at the Iowa State Fair this summer. Here's how he answered it.
12: After the first of the year, my family and I will do as we've always done, and that is reflect and pray on where we might next serve, where we might next contribute.
11: This has been a commonplace political strategy for decades here. Make inroads with potential donors and organizers and get in front of likely Iowa caucus goers. People like Janet Gastineau, who was at the Iowa State Fair back in August. She was in the Varied Industries building when Pence was taking shelter from a thunderstorm. She was surprised and happy to see him there.
13: I think he did a great job and I love the way he, he handled things on January 6th. I mean, he protected himself, but he wasn't willing to go that extra step that Trump wanted him to do.
11: Do you think the Republican Party needs to kind of be done with Donald Trump? Yes,
13: I do. Yes. But Pence could easily fill those shoes.
11: Iowa's caucuses have been at the front of the line for both major political parties for the last half century. Last week, the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee voted to kick Iowa out of that early window, giving South Carolina the first primary followed by Nevada and New Hampshire on the same day, Georgia and Michigan would follow. One of the loudest supporters for the Iowa Democrats caucuses remaining first is Jeff Kaufman. He's chair of the Republican Party of Iowa.
12: This makes no tactical political sense to pull Iowa. It's just a matter of pure ideology, ideas trumping something that is inherently an activist and action-oriented endeavor.
11: Kaufman also chairs the panel that makes recommendations for the RNC calendar. They're sticking with the status quo of starting in Iowa and the New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina. He says this order has lasted partly because the two parties have worked together in the early states. Former President Donald Trump announced he's running for a third time. Trump's pretty popular with Republicans here, but Kaufman says the party won't pick favorites.
12: If I'm going to sit here and criticize the National Democrats on behalf of my state, Well, I need to also be neutral in action and in word if I'm going to save the caucuses in 2028.
11: But the parties stand to enter new territory with two different calendars in 2024. Democrats will likely have a non-competitive first primary in South Carolina if President Biden runs for re-election. Rachel Payne Caulfield is a political science professor at Drake University in Des Moines. She says President Biden has a major competitive advantage in the DNC's proposed map.
15: It takes a lot of money to run across a lot of states at the same time. So I suspect that this favors uh, establishment candidates, candidates that can amass huge war chests of money. But it really does. It unleashes a whole bunch of new legal and logistical questions about where resources will be deployed.
11: And with the president suggesting the DNC rework its calendar every four years, Which states go first could be a lot more of a political calculation than an ode to tradition. One thing looks certain, though. Republican presidential hopefuls will be at that starting line in Iowa in 2024, even if Democrats are trying out a new course. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines.
14: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, an update on the surge in COVID, flu, and seasonal respiratory virus cases. In your forecast, clear and bright skies today with temperatures around 50 and some gusty winds. Mostly clear tonight and it falls to the low 30s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a sunny day in the low to mid 40s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You
13: can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR.
0: Now, in business news, a former employee of Boston-based Data Robot is suing the company for wrongful termination. The Boston Globe reports the woman was let go in May when the AI startup cut 7% of its workforce. But her lawsuit claims her termination was retaliation for resisting pressure to commit accounting fraud. DataRobot denies the claims. Graduate workers at Boston University are forming a union. Organizers behind the effort say the vote to unionize passed with 98 percent approval. They're asking for higher wages and benefits as well as better housing and living conditions. We should note that BU holds the broadcast license for WBUR. New Hampshire is hoping to attract more visitors this winter through a new tourism campaign. The state's Division of Travel and Tourism Development says its winter campaign highlights activities like snowboarding, snowmobiling, and tax-free shopping. Around 3 million people are expected to visit the Granite State this winter. It's 844.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu/globe and Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com.
14: Morning edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Those who still think about the pandemic will have a little more to work out this holiday season because holiday gatherings come amid surges in COVID and other respiratory viruses. Let's discuss this with Dr. Preeti Malani with the University of Michigan. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. How concerned are you as we head into the end of the the height of the holiday season? Well, I'm, I'm quite
23: concerned. There's, we're seeing a lot of flu in the United States, and uh, this rise is quite
14: early. Um, I want to be realistic, though, about what people can do. I mean, there's it's a state in the obvious here. People have mostly stopped with the masks. People have mostly stopped avoiding gatherings. If that is the reality, uh, that you're going to show up at the family gathering and nobody's going to mask at that gathering, how can you reduce your risk?
23: You know, there's a lot. I'm glad you asked. There's a lot that we can do. I want to just emphasize that we're not powerless. So washing your hands, covering your cough, and getting a flu shot. flu shot uptake has not been very good this year or last year. And they vary year to year in terms of effectiveness. But the sense is that this year's vaccine is actually a pretty good match Hmm. to to the strains circulating. And much like COVID vaccines, flu shots don't prevent all infections, but they can help prevent hospitalizations, deaths, as well as transmission. And again, it's not too late to get a flu shot. Uh, the other piece, and this has been socialized well during COVID is to to stay home if you're sick. And I think in the past and myself included, we've gone to work sick, we've gone to school sick, we've sent our kids to school and daycare sick, and and this, this just can't happen. Yeah. And hopefully we um, are, also avoiding those big social gatherings if we're ill.
14: Oh yeah, and, and and we're we're keeping kids home from school even if it's not a positive covid test. If they if they're sick about with anything, if they're coughing with anything, they just need to stay home for a day and see how it goes. That's the right it, it,
23: thing. It, but, absolutely. And and I and I want to also mention masks and I and again, I think we have learned how well masks work and particularly if someone in your household is sick, if you're taking care of a young child, you know, that mask can help protect you yeah. so that you can continue to be a caregiver and continue to run your household because flu is, uh, is, is, can be quite serious for
15: people.
14: Tell me if I'm doing the right thing here as well. As I go through my time and as I travel, I'm thinking about whether I need to expose myself in a situation. I've traveled a few times recently. I'm face-to-face without a mask in meetings with people I'm going to see, but then I'm masking on the plane or in other places where I might be in a crowd because that just doesn't matter. Is, is, am I doing myself any good there?
23: I, I do think you're, you're doing yourself good, and we've all sort of figured out what, what the right balance is for us, and something I think about personally is disruption. Um, as we're getting into the holidays, like, how bad would it be for me to get sick right now and to have my plans disrupted? But especially in crowded indoor spaces, whether it's on the subway or in, in an airplane, a lot of people who are sick around us right now, so, you know, put that mask on, keep it handy.
14: How are you spending the holidays?
23: How am I spending the holidays? Well, I'm going to be rounding at the University of Michigan, um, and I'm going to be home uh, with my family. I'm very excited to uh, be able to gather this year when we haven't been able to do it quite as normal the last couple of years.
14: So this will be nearer a normal gathering for you, and you'll go for it.
23: it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'll remind people to stay home if they're sick. Okay. And, I, and I think, again, uh, we have socialized that the last few years, and I... Um, the gathering it will be large, but it'll be small enough that
14: people will, will take precautions. Uh, Dr. Malani, I hope you and your family have a great time. As to you, Steve. Thank you so much. Dr. Preeti Malani is at the University of Michigan. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, analysts are predicting a resurgence in air travel next year, and that may lead to global airlines turning their first profit since 2019. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Peter O'Dowd is here in studio to tell Hmm. us what they're going to be talking about today. Peter, it's so nice to meet you in person. It is
28: so nice to be in person. What a change. Um, The Brittany Griner. Uh, Yeah, you guys are jumping on that. Of course. That's a huge story is breaking right now. We just heard the president talk. I think one of the questions is going to be, what about Paul Whelan, the other American who is in Russian custody? I mean, so a lot of people want to know that. Uh, We're also going to speak with a paramedic from New York City who is going to talk about Mayor Adams' decision or announcement that he will take mentally ill people off Mm. the streets of New York City and put them into psychiatric hospitals in some cases. Our paramedic... um, will tell us why he thinks that's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. They're already completely overwhelmed, uh, personally overwhelmed. You know, it's just, it's a very difficult job and he doesn't think this is the solution at mm-hmm. all for the crisis on the streets of New York City. And then Berta Rojas, uh, local musician, professor at the Berkeley College of Music, a classical guitarist. Deepa's going to speak with Berta. Um, I heard just a little snippet of it yesterday. It is
0: gorgeous. This is lovely. You're going to love it. love people who bring music. (laughs) Peter O'Dowd come back anytime. Thank you. That's here and now today at noon. It's 851.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. There are more than
9: 50,000 allegations of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Our investigative reporting team zeroed in on one of them. I stopped. I wanted to check if he was alive. But it was obvious that he wasn't. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: One war crime, one investigation. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. That's All Things Considered, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR,
9: Boston's NPR news station.
0: Near 50 and windy today under sunny skies, low 30s tonight, and a few clouds move in. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston at 852.
29: The changing fortunes of the airline industry. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher
10: Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss.
29: From Marketplace, I'm Nova Safo for David Brancaccio. Southwest has announced that it will start paying out dividends again. It's the first major U.S. airline to resume payments after suspending them because of the pandemic. Airlines are quite optimistic about the near-term future. Many expect to turn a profit next year for the first time since 2019. That's according to the International Air Transport Association, which is predicting a near $5 billion boost. That boost is coming from a different mix of passengers than before the pandemic. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more on that.
23: What's remarkable about the airline industry's recovery is who's fueling it, says Henry Hardewelt, a travel industry analyst at Atmosphere Research Group.
29: It has been powered primarily by people traveling on their own dime because the business travel sector is still very much in recovery mode.
23: Hardevelt says his firm has found that before COVID, business travelers made up 50 percent or more of airline profits. But today, leisure travelers are the source of most of the industry's profits. Meanwhile, airline capacity is shrinking, says Helene Becker, a managing director at Cowan.
6: You don't have the infrastructure in place. You don't have the equipment in place to expand to handle the demand. So you have no choice but to raise ticket prices. Becker
23: says those rising prices in turn may prompt some potential leisure travelers to stay put. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace.
29: ...a revised policy on containing COVID, pivoting from a zero-tolerance approach, which led to protests last week, and stunted economic growth in that country. A lot of the harshest measures are being rolled back. I spoke with Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack about what that could mean for the global supply chain.
24: Well, it means that there are going to be far more disruptions. So China is going to go through a wave of infections just like the rest of the world did. People will be calling in sick uh, or they have to stay at home to care for their elderly relatives. We know that people over the age of 80 years old, only 40% of them have the third shot of the Chinese vaccine. So. There aren't enough people who are vaccinated amongst the elderly, and researchers say this is needed to avoid hospitalization, so hospitals are also going to be packed. Frontline medical workers will get sick. It's going to get real hard before things get better.
29: That's Marketplace's Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that a letter to China's leaders from Foxconn founder Terry Goh played a big role in shifting policy. Foxconn is a major Apple contractor. Let's check the the numbers. (laughs) Investors in Asia are taking a wait-and-see approach to the news from China. The Shanghai Composite Index closed essentially flat overnight. In Hong Kong, investors were more optimistic, sending the Hang Seng Index higher by almost 3.5%. In Europe, the FTSE in London is flat. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are pointing slightly higher in the range of 4 tenths to 6 tenths percent. The national average for a gallon of regular gas is currently at $3.33, according to AAA. That's one cent lower than a year ago at this time. That's before Russia invaded Ukraine. Gas prices are following declining oil prices. In the U.S., they're down more than 40% since June.
10: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax
29: compliance at avalara.com. The federal government has held the first ever auction of leases to develop commercial scale floating wind farms off the West Coast. The auction generated nearly $760 million in winning bids from energy companies. And there's much more of that kind of investment to come, according to the International Energy Agency. In a new report, it predicts that renewables will overtake coal and become the world's biggest source of electricity generation by. 2025, if I'm doing my math right, that's just over two weeks, two years away. Marketplace's energy correspondent, Andy Euler, looks at the reasons for the shift.
19: Coal generates more than a third of the world's electricity, more than any other source. But the International Energy Agency, the IEA, says that's going to change soon.
27: Really, the the process, the transition from coal to renewables is, is, in a way, it's just getting started.
19: Clark Williams-Dairy is an analyst at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He says, especially here in the United States, that transition away from coal is because renewables are often the cheaper option.
27: In that context, it's really hard for a coal producer to change the trends. It's like sort of trying to sweep back the tide with a broom.
8: It, it, It can't be done.
19: And legislation passed this year in Congress could accelerate those trends even more, says Akshay Jha at Carnegie Mellon University. So the Inflation Reduction Act has the potential to bring, a, bring that sort of innovation for um, other products that we currently don't think of as being cost-effective the IRA includes billions in subsidies and tax credits to encourage development of technologies like advanced nuclear power and hydrogen generation in the U.S. Now, Internationally, the IEA report notes that momentum for renewable energy in Europe intensified after Russia's invasion of Ukraine interrupted fuel supplies. Ian Lang is director of the Mineral Energy Economics Program at the Colorado School of Mines.
11: OECD countries are kind of pushing faster now that they've had the issues with the conflict in Ukraine.
19: In China, where coal is still the main fuel used to generate electricity, the energy transition has been slower. But that's changing, says Greg Nemet at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that change matters for the proliferation of renewables.
17: China is the biggest driver of it. One, because China is so big, but also because they now have
19: much more ambitious targets for uh, renewables. And, you know, China lives up to its targets. He says he wouldn't be surprised if China actually exceeded its renewable energy targets, leading to an even bigger drop in coal use. In Austin, I'm a Euler for Marketplace.
29: And the Labor Department just released its latest weekly total of initial applications for state unemployment insurance benefits. The number remains relatively steady, up by just 4,000 to a total of 230,000 claims last week. And just under 1.7 mil- million people in all are collecting jobless benefits. That total has been trending up, though slightly, since October. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Sunny and around 50 today, low 30s tonight. Then it'll finally be Friday. We'll have sunny skies and low 40s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Now offering gift memberships. Give a year of art and inspiration while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org and Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org. In 2017, the battle to retake Mosul from ISIS razed
1: the Iraqi city to the ground.
13: The first time when I stepped into the old town of Mosul, I said, there is no way this could be rebuilt. Five years later... The old town now is a completely different city, from a ghost town into a city vibrating
1: with light, with colors. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR,
14: Boston's NPR news station. I'm executive producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.